Welcome to Middle Grade Mavens, where two author mums discuss their favourite middle grade books, provide recommendations and share insider industry tips for authors trying their hand at middle grade. Julie Ann Grasso is the author of the Frankie DuPont mystery series, cupcake enthusiast and part-time library book wrangler. Pamela Eucherman is a writer, dancer and homeschooling mum who sometimes finds time for sleep. Both Julie and Pamela devour middle grade books, not only for research, but to share with their combined brood of four munchkins. Hi, Pamela, and welcome back to Middle Grade Mavens. Hello. It's our 58th episode. 58. <laughs> That's insane. I know. I know. And hasn't life changed somewhat in the last couple of months, Pamela? Uh, yeah, well, not so much for me, but um, it has been nice to emerge from our little cocoon once in a while for the last week or two, just for a few not-so-essential essentials like kids' shoes and seeing family. But um, I think it feels like life is slowly, cautiously returning to normal. What about for you, Julie? Well, we've had a bit of a suburban medical drama with Danny Mm. rupturing another disc and going off in an ambulance to the hospital. He's home and doing well and hopefully no surgery, but you can imagine the joy of having to actually attend a hospital during a pandemic. So anyway, (laughs) (laughs) drama aside, I thought this would interest our listeners Um, In the midst of the chaos of schooling our children and a global pandemic, Pamela and I decided to go ahead and sign up for a season pass for Masterclass. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's a video series by the masters of the entertainment world. I've been eyeing off the Neil Gaiman class for about a year, but when it came down to it, you can't just buy one class, which was like, what? And then I was like, oh, all right, I have to buy the pass. So Pamela and I dived in and we bought the season pass. Now, to give you a little backstory, I finished my latest manuscript the week before the global pandemic was declared and the country locked down. And I, for one, have had absolutely no inclination to write anything during this time. And I was saying to Pamela, it's getting to the point where I may never write again. I need to do something. So we finally jumped in and did the masterclass. And I've been dabbling in so many classes, it's not funny. From gardening with Ron Finley to writing with Neil Gaiman and James Patterson. And the latest gold is Steve Martin on comedy. And as a result of this inspiration, I've actually begun a plot map for the sequel to my latest manuscript. James Patterson never starts a book without a highly plotted outline. And I have to agree, it's the way I work also. So I'm on my way to developing my plot map, which may, you may or may not, I probably haven't even, I maybe have never talked about it. But anyway, it's an elaborate nine page document with boxes and arrows featuring points of rising tension, climax and resolution. I think it's quite glorious to behold once it's done and James agrees. So after it's completed, I'll begin writing the story. So that's me in a nutshell for the past few weeks with Masterclass. Pamela, what gold have you got to share in your pandemic literary journey? 
<laughs> well, I love I love hearing what you've got out of those classes, and I am very very impressed by your your plot outlines. They are exquisite, <laughs> and I'm really excited to hear that you're going to be writing again soon. So that's really cool. Um, yeah, I was I was impressed, so impressed by your reports of masterclass that um, I was went in there, and my intention, like yours, was to dive into the writing classes and maybe some of the screenwriting ones. But um, yeah, I did the gardening one first because I love yes. gardening and growing our own food, so that was really good. Um, <laughs> and he's he's what's he the gangster gardener? So if you're going to do that, folks, um, and you've got oh, kids, listen, listen with your headphones on. <laughs> oh yeah, he swears a lot. <laughs> um, then I did uh, I did I did Christina Aguilera's singing one. And then um, Misty Copeland's ballet class, because, you know, ballet is my thing. Yeah. Um, and then only then did I begin Neil Gaiman's class. I haven't actually finished it yet. But, you know, it was really valuable, I felt, doing – and it was just, just a coincidence, but just because I just felt like doing them. But it was really valuable doing the singing and the ballet classes, actually, even as a writer, because, it, you know, I realised it doesn't matter which creative pursuit is your favour, is your flavour. You can learn from the masters in any of the arts and they all have a similar thing to say. Um, and one of those things is that they've all said is copy from the best, copy other people's styles until you find your own style and your own voice, Yeah, um, which I think is great. You know, I think we, we tend to do that anyway, but it's like, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We can do that. Um, the other is that, once you have a strong grasp on the technical aspects of, you know, whatever your field is, um, what will take you to the next level is knowing when to bend or break the rules. So in singing, that might be swallowing word speed or rather than enunciating them or maybe growling rather than focusing on perfect pitch. And in ballet, that might be a, a bit less being a bit less precise with positioning so you have a longer line or, or faster execution. And then in writing, that might be playing with sentence length or structure or yeah, maybe if you're Margaret Atwood, just doing away with punctuation altogether. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but, you know, it, it, it's great to, to sort of go, okay, yes, we can throw that away a little bit and, and be a bit more creative. You know, once you know the rules, you can break them. And and then what it all comes back to then is, and they've all, they all say this, it's finding the heart. It's finding the emotion of the story that you're trying to tell and focusing on that. Every form of art whether it's visual, performing or written, is about storytelling and story is a journey, an internal journey. And that's what the audience cares about the most, not the technical perfection. So anyway, yeah. that has been my big breakthrough, um, well, you know, somewhat big breakthrough recently. And I'm about three quarters of the way through the first draft of a middle grade fantasy slash mythology novel at the moment. So you can be, you can bet I'll be editing that, with all this in mind, although I don't have a highly arrowed, highlighted nine-page plot <laughs> that's not my thing. But I do I do start with um, an outline and then I sort of dive in a little bit and then I go, right, now I really need to plot this and I plot it a bit further. Yes. And my, this, t this time I've got actually got a spreadsheet, which has helped with this, you know, writing the scenes. But, um, well, yeah, that help. is your version of a plot map, I'd say, because yeah, I've listened to the first time podcast, and one of them does spreadsheets, and I'm like, I can't even imagine a spreadsheet for oh. writing. But yeah, I know you yeah. love your spreadsheets. So. Oh, this is the first time I've ever this this book has been the first time I've ever done a spreadsheet, and it really is just a list of scenes that I yeah. can just go, and then I've sort of got you know, first act, second act, third act, you know, yeah. and these are yeah. the scenes in that act, and then um. 
you know, then I've sort of broken, okay, this could be one chapter, roughly, you know. Yeah. Just to make sure, because I, I tend to kind of rush, once I get to about halfway, I kind of rush to the end. So this so way I don't. Do I. <laughs> well, probably everybody <laughs> does, but, um, yeah, this kind of hopefully will prevent that. And, and I've still gotten three quarters of the way. And, you know, I – was messaging you last night going, yeah, this isn't good enough. I haven't got enough of the oh, time. Blah, 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 blah. Panic, panic, panic. Um, yep. I'm going to have to go back and do Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and um, just quietly for our listeners, um, we're not sponsored by Masterclass, unfortunately. <laughs> but if anybody out there <laughs> would like to sponsor us, uh, love that. <laughs> but I, I tell you, I, um, I've been listening to Harry Potter um, on audiobook through Borrowbox, which is through our, you know, library. Oh. Um, for free and um i've been uh listening to the prisoner of azkaban and talk about um going quickly through a scene jk rowling is the ultimate not going quickly through a scene so i you know i've read the books but having them like read to you is so different so they're the whole scene in Azkaban where basically Sirius Black is um he's they they sort of meet up with him and you know and they think he's gonna kill them and this scene just goes on for literally an hour (laughs) and it's like and the tension it's just it's a it's an exercise in tension like Mm -hmm. that she just gives little breadcrumbs and then you know but I'm just like I'm screaming at the end just tell them tell them why Sirius Black is not going to kill them. Oh, it was so funny. But I was just like, I really need to go and read that again and study how she's done it, I think. But also Mm. she does, she takes too long. (laughs) Wow. We're reading to my seven, because my seven-year-old has read all the ones up to the Goblet of Fire, I think is the one that we're reading right now. And so we're reading it to him and he's sort of reading it a bit to himself and, it's going yeah. on forever. It does. Like, <laughs> I when have I read, read it, them but, oh, oh back God, in the yeah. day, I devoured them. So yeah, same, same. I but I think know. there could have been – I mean, they're great. I love them and she did a great job, but there could have been some really good judicious editing. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway. Well, I, I think there's eight books, isn't there? Yeah. I remember my <laughs> sister saying – Oh, number seven, they're just wandering about under the invisible cloak the whole book. And I was like, oh. And then I read it and I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're just wandering about under an invisible cloak. Yeah. It's like an entire book of it. But anyway, she can get away with it. So. <laughs> I guess we better review some books. Let's dive in. Tell yes. us, Pamela, what is the title of today's book? So today I'm doing Beauty, uh, Beyond Belief, which is a beautiful book, which is what I was going to say, but, you know, it's getting late and I'm tired. Yep. <laughs> um, Beyond Belief by D. White, published by Omnibus Books, an imprint of Scholastic Australia on April the 1st, 2020. Oh, and would you share the jacket blurb with us? Yes. Yeah. Inspired by the true story of Muslims who saved the lives of Jewish children in the Second World War. In 1942, in the Grand Mosque in Paris, 11-year-old Reuben is hiding from the Nazis. Already thousands of Jewish children have disappeared, and Reuben's parents are desperately trying to find his sister. Reuben must learn how to pass himself off as a Muslim while he waits for the infamous fox to help him get to Spain to be reunited with his family. One hint of Reuben's true identity and he'll be killed. So will the people trying to save him. But when the mosque is raided and the fox doesn't come, Reuben is forced to flee. 
Finding himself in the south of France, he discovers that he must adjust to a new reality and to the startling revelation of the fox's true identity. Oh, wow. I really want to read this. Yeah, you should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> oh, that sounds amazing. And what genre would you class this as? Uh, well, this one's easy today. No, no making up new genres. It's historical fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> we occasionally get one that we can put in a box. Yeah, exactly. And what would you estimate the word count? Uh, I think it's about 50,000 words. It's about 260 pages. Yeah. And what drew you to this book? So I was at a writer's event earlier this year, you know, when you could still do that. And um, I've met Dee White, the author, a couple of times before. And at this event, she told me about this book and I was intrigued right away. This is a passion project of hers and she did a lot of research, including uh, trip to Paris. So, you know, I knew it I knew it'd be good. Oh, yeah. Now tell us about it. Yeah, the book is about Reuben, um, young Jewish Parisian in 1942. He's been in hiding with his parents in a cellar for a month, but it's becoming more and more dangerous, so his parents decide it's time to leave. They take him to the local mosque and promise that someone nicknamed or codenamed the Fox will come to get him and take him to meet them in Spain. The Imam of the mosque welcomes him and he begins to take on his new identity as a Muslim. Of course, he's very frightened and lonely and can't wait to leave. But as he begins to settle, he starts to realise that other children at the mosque are like him. They're Jewish and some have lost more than him. And he begins to draw strength from them and from the memories of his parents. After a while, a German officer decides to make visits and cause trouble at the mosque, suspicious of the children's race. And during one particularly bad raid, Reuben and two of the other children escape via a secret tunnel. As they are leaving, a gun is fired, but they don't know if anybody is hurt. Eventually, they're met by two French people who heard the shots and were on their way to get them. Now, I won't say much more about the plot because I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's got it on their reading pile. But from there, Reuben, a.k.a. Abdul, is set on a harrowing journey to escape Nazi Paris and to find his family. Wow, uh, it just sounds amazing. Overall enjoyment? Yeah, I, wow, I love this book. Um, you know, the story was inspired by true stories of Muslims who risked their lives to save Jewish children. So it's absolutely heartwarming. And um, we've got an interview on, on this episode with Dee White, so you'll hear more about that and, and you know where she got that from and how she developed it. Um, the language is very simple, but it's also just beautifully elegant. Um, and then as in the interview, I talked about um, themes because this is another great tie into the interview that I did with um, Hayley Chewin's last episode. And if you haven't listened to that, please do because she's brilliant, um, where we talked about dark topics in middle grade fiction. And, you know, the book is set during the Holocaust, which does not make for light reading, the first book that I ever read about the Holocaust when I was about 12, I think I was, it's, it really it scarred me for life because it was set in a concentration camp. Um, but in Beyond Belief, the focus is on Reuben's experience as a Jewish boy in Paris. Um, and, you know, she's done it really gently. And while there's a mention of work camps, as was true of the time, people didn't know that these work camps were concentration camps until much later after the war, I think. They thought that people were sent there to work for the Nazis. So that stays within context and readers are spared from, from that horror. I think Dee has done a fabulous job with balancing that darkness with hope 
and friendship and even a glimpse at a more human side to one of the Nazis. It's it's just a beautiful coming-of-age story that's harrowing but it's also softened by light. Um, yeah. I loved it. And um, a quick mention about the cover designed by uh, Sarah Mitchell. It's, it's quite lovely and um, I sort of read the book and I went back and had a look at the cover and when you look it over – everything on that cover are key themes within the book, which I thought was a really nice touch. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? Um, so the recommended age I've seen for this, and I <clears throat> should have spoken to D about it, but um, it was nine plus, I believe. But I, look, I wouldn't recommend it for my nine-and-a-half-year-old yet. He's a bit too sensitive. I think this would be um, – yeah, I think it would – just heard it yeah it would be on his mind for a while yeah yeah in a year or so I think it'd be okay if you've got a child who's interested in history who already knows a bit about what went on in world war one and world war two um yeah it may be fine but otherwise probably better for 10 and 11 and up um I think it'd make a perfect school text for year seven and eight yeah oh and do you think reluctant readers would enjoy this book or is it for more confident readers yeah, I think based on the content, it's probably more for confident readers. But the simple language might actually be great for older kids who want more mature content because I know that, you know, there's kids out there like that. So, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so there you go. Beautiful book. Yes. I keep coughing and choking. I'm sorry. <sighs> Winter is come. That's right. It's chilly, chilly. Um, so your turn, Julie. You have two books today, I believe. Yes, High Achiever. <laughs> so what's the title of your first book? Um, the first book is As Fast As I Can by Penny Tanji, published by UQP on the 31st of March, 2020. And I've seen this one. This is a very bright book. Yes. Um, okay, could you share the, the jacket boy with us, please? Sure. One girl, one dream, a few hurdles. Ten-year-old Vivian is determined to win a medal at the Olympic Games one day. Problem is, she hasn't found a sport she's any good at yet. But everyone says if you work hard enough, you can achieve anything, right? So when Vivian discovers she has a talent for cross-country running, finally her Olympic dream might actually come true. But then a family illness is uncovered and all of Vivian's plans begin to unravel. Can she keep her dream alive or will she be stopped in her tracks? A funny, heartfelt novel about resilience, acceptance and dreaming big. Oh, what genre would this be? Well, I guess we could say this is middle grade contemporary with a sport theme. Oh, I don't think we've done I don't think we've ever had a sport theme. There you go. We should do more sport themes, shouldn't we? (laughs) Um, And what was the word count for this one? I'd say it's around 50K. Okay. Good. Good. Within within Julie's acceptable range. Yeah. So what drew you to this book? So this was offered to me by UQP and – to be honest, I have never read a sport-themed book, so I thought, actually, it's time to give it a go um, because Pamela and I don't really lean ourselves towards um, contemporary that often. So I'm really trying to rectify that because Giselle is so ensconced in contemporary. So I'm trying to 
read more things that I think will take her fancy. Um, so when um, the lovely Jean offered it to me at UQP, I said, yes, I'd love to read that. So that's why. Hmm. I love that Giselle's loving um, contemporary right now. I know. Awesome. Yeah. We still, my, my eldest son, nine, Mr. Nine-year-old, as he called himself, uh, Manga Boy, he's massively into Norse mythology at the moment. Yes. Hugely. So he's reading Magnus Chase, the Rick Reardon books. He's mm. nice, nice. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get him reading contemporary. So there you go. It's yeah. Really awesome. I think contemporary's hard to get boys to read to be terribly boxy. Mm. Um, yeah, but anyway. Yeah. Well, I've got one coming up next week. So yeah. Go. So tell us about it. Yes. Vivian has an Olympic dream, which she shares with her best friend, Olivia. Trouble is, Olivia is better than her at almost every sport. That is until Vivian finds herself running three kilometres home when her mum has a faint. She discovers she's actually pretty good at long distance running and might even have found her sport. Trouble is, the fainting spells her mum has been experienced turn out to be something more sinister than Vivian and her family could imagine. And now Vivian is also afflicted with the same thing. Her dreams of Olympic gold just came and went within a heartbeat because her irregular heartbeat might just be her undoing. Oh, so it's kind of a mixture of medical and sport. Yes, and um, what's my other love? <laughs> medical. Nurse, nurse Julie. <laughs> nurse. <laughs> oh, so um, did you enjoy this? Yeah, this was a lovely insight into the mind of an 11-year-old. With all of Vivian's daily dilemmas and angst, we are reminded of exactly what it's like to be young and unsure of your place in the world. As Vivian's story unfolds, including hers and her mother's illness, you'll be cheering her from the sidelines, riding that roller coaster of emotions. What I found refreshing that this wasn't just a follow your dreams and everything will turn out peachy with persistence trope. It was quite the opposite, really. It was about the power to channel your energy, both good and bad, into focusing on something new, even when your dreams are actually deemed impossible. Despite possibly never reading a book about sport in my life, I found this a wonderful tale, drawing me in and making me care a great deal about Vivian, her sport, her passion and her plight. Oh, I love that. I love that it's not just a happy ending. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. Awesome. So um, who will love this book? What age do you think? Yeah, I'd say this is for 10 plus um, and for any kid who has, has an affinity for sport. Awesome. And do you think uh, for reluctant readers or more for confident readers? Yeah, this is a confident read, folks, I think, being a slow burn till the conclusion, especially with that, you know, slightly larger word count. Okay. So we've dragged you away from middle middle grade magical realism. Magical realism. <laughs> nice. And, I mean, just to see what your second book is today, Julie. Yes. It is The Power of Positive Pranking by Nat Amor, published by Penguin Random House in June 2020. Uh-huh. So not quite out yet. <laughs> yes. It's like out in like 2nd oh, of June, I think it is. So five days. Oh, six days. Yep. Oh, uh, we, let's not this, do the math. <laughs> no. And this has been quite a funny one too because um, I think we were one of the first to get the shiny cover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. 
And we love Nat. We love you, Nat. Um, could you share the jacket blurb with us, please? Yeah, sure. Green Peas is our name and pranking is our game. A symphony of alarm clocks at assembly? Yep, that was us. A stampede of fluffy guinea pigs. It's next on our agenda. But for me, Cookie and Zeke, it's about more than just fun. We're determined to make a difference. And when the adults won't listen, us kids will find a way to be heard. As long as we can stay out of detention. Do you know, I think I should have got quickly read it to my son because it, this this book you should it was, have. <laughs> <laughs> this book was wrongly sent to me instead of Julie. Yes. And um, so I, it was it was in my house for about a day and went into a padded bag and off it went again. I should have read it before taking a day or two to read it to um, Mr. Seven-Year-Old. But anyway, <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Um, so what genre is this one? This is humorous contemporary middle grade. There we go. How's that uh, for not a magical realism? There we go. Two and one. <laughs> awesome. Um, and the word count? I'd say this is around 55 Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, need I ask what drew you to this book? Well, of course, we love Nat's first book, Secrets of a Schoolyard Millionaire. So I asked to be put on the list when her next book came out, or shall I say, I demanded, and which may or not have upset a certain one more page podcast team when Middle Grade Mavens happened to receive a foil adorned copy first, ahead of Kate and Liz. Tee-hee. Now, don't get me wrong, it's all in good fun and we have a mutual admiration society going on with the girls over at One More Page. So, poor Nat being dropped into the middle of the foil embellishment wars. What is an author to do? <laughs> the, the Twitter, the foil embellishment Twitter wars almost. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, can you tell us more about it? Sure. Casey Wu is a master prankster. She spent her entire life pranking her grandpa, Argong, and he's never fully gotten the better of her. She shares her pranking passion with Zeke and Cookie, her two friends, and they have made quite a name for themselves over the past few months at Watterson Primary. So when they discover themselves, oh, I've, I've <laughs> I skipped a line. So when they discover Mayor Loophole has sinister plans for their beloved Brennan Park. They take their pranking shenanigans to a whole nother level. And in another level, I mean spying on the mayor's office and gaining the evidence they need, then enacting the most incredible positive pranking plan to expose the mayor for all she is. Green peas don't just do things for giggles. They do things to make a difference, to help people. And Kooky Kathy, the park's resident homeless person, is as people as they get. And no one, I mean no one, is going to take that away from her. Not if green peas have anything to do with it. I think you have to read it to get <laughs> all that. Yes. Um, so, overall enjoyment? Well, once again, I loved it. Nat has created another heartfelt roller coaster of a ride, making us fall in love with Casey Wu and her little posse of people. The pranks are pranktastic. The cause is worthy. And I found myself so invested in Kooky Kathy once again, after we met her from Tess Heckleston's shenanigans in Secrets of a Schoolyard Millionaire. 
What I love about Nat's books is that she truly believes and empowers kids to believe they are capable of anything. And if anything means sticking it to the institution and rescuing someone's home regardless of the cost, then I'm certain kids who read this book will come away with that secret little knowledge that if they work together, they have the power to change the world. So is it a sequel to Schoolyard Millionaire or is it just... No, no. It's set in the same world but it's a standalone. Okay. Yeah. Similar character. Okay. Yeah. Um, So what's the age range for this book, do you think? I'm going to say for eight plus, despite the longer word count here, because Giselle commandeered this, stayed up too late one night reading it, then refused to start homeschooling the next day until she finished it. So I think it might be a winner, winner chicken dinner. Congratulations, Nat, once again. (laughs) Um, And it sounds like this might be a good one for reluctant readers. Yeah, look, it's definitely lengthy, um, but she keeps really nice short chapters. So I think it would suit... Um, a confident reader, but a reluctant reader as a read aloud, I think would be great. Okay, cool. Well done. And we have two interviews coming up, don't we? We do. Yes, we've got an interview with Dee White and Nat Amor. So stay tuned, folks. Don't hang up just yet. Enjoy. Dee White writes fiction and non-fiction books for children, teens and adults. Her titles have been published in the USA, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and Israel. She teaches and mentors writers of all ages, visiting schools, libraries and festivals all over the world to share her passion for stories. She is the best-selling author of Letters to Leonardo, Canine Heroes, Rena's Rainbow and the Top 10 Writing, books, top 10 writing Tips books, and her latest books, Beyond Belief and Eddie Popcorn's Guide to Parent Training. Welcome to the podcast, Dee. Hello, Pam. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. So um, let's start first with your recent middle grade book, Beyond Belief. It was inspired by Parisian Muslims who helped Jewish children during the Holocaust. It's a beautiful real world story wrapped in a beautiful fictional story. Can you tell Thank us? You. <laughs> I, I really loved it. <laughs> oh, good. Can, yeah. Can you tell us what prompted you to write this book? Well, I think I'd always had an idea that I would write a Holocaust story at some point. My father lived in Austria when he was a child, and he and his family were evacuated after Hitler occupied Austria. So the Holocaust was very much a family story that was told as I was growing up. And so I always thought that I would like to write one at some point. And then I was researching a book, which is still a work in progress, and I was in Paris. And I came across the story of these Muslims who had saved Jewish children during World War II. And it was a true story. And I thought, this is so interesting. I just have to find out more about it. Yeah, it's not something that I've, I've actually heard of before. So it was, you know, an eye-opener for me. Yeah, it's one of those stories that, um, yeah, not not a lot's known about. And I've just been doing a lot of research on the Holocaust in Paris and the Veldiv Roundup, which took place in July 1942. And there were more than 13,000 Jews arrested during that time and taken to the concentration camps. So 
you know, it was I was I was reading all about that, and out of the there were something like twenty four thousand Jews living in Paris at the time, and the French government had made a deal with the Nazis that the Nazis would not destroy Paris if they handed over twenty four thousand Jews. So they arrested thirteen thousand, which was a horrific number, but there was between ten and eleven thousand that escaped. And that was through people like these Muslims helping them get out of Paris. It's just shocking when you hear those kinds of numbers, isn't it? I know, it's terrible. And when I was doing the research and I went to, you know, lots of, I went to the Holocaust uh, Centre in Melbourne, I went to the one in New York, I went to the one in Paris, and just to see the photos of the people, you know, and young children, babies, they didn't discriminate, they just took all of them. So uh, it was, and I just felt really compelled to write about that and to write about these kind people who didn't care about, you know, their religion or their background or any of that. They, they were just people helping other people. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And that's what I mean by, you know, the beautiful uh, real-world story within this. So a lot of research has gone into this book, as you mentioned, you were in Paris um, and did some locally when you were doing this research, did you already have the story in mind, Ruben's story, or were you gathering fodder for this story or was it only because you were gathering fodder for another story? Um, I didn't have this story in mind at all. Uh, the story I was researching is called Paris Hunting and it's more of an action adventure with some historical elements and it actually a lot of it takes place in the in the Paris Hunting Museum. And so I was actually in Paris at the time doing research around the museum and all the museums in Paris and along the um, the the river and all that kind of thing. And so this story was not even on my radar at that stage. And it was just something I came across in the you know in the research process. Right. So when you were writing the book, did you find that you had all of the detail that you needed or did you need to go back and do more research? Well, what happened was I, um, so I, I was in Paris um, two years before I started writing the book and then I, um, I decided I would try and get a grant to go back to Paris to write the book. And I basically had a concept and a couple of pages and there was a squibby conference coming up in Sydney and I thought, if I pitch it at the Sydney conference and there are publishers interested, that will help support my grant application. So that's what I ended up doing. I prepared a pitch and I submitted to the pitching panel and I was accepted to pitch my manuscript. And so I did that at the Sydney conference and it was one of the most scary things I've ever done. Mm -hmm. But it was worth it because there were publishers that were interested and so that was enough for me to have support for my grant application and I was successful in getting funding from Creative Victoria and to spend a month in Paris doing the research. And while I was there, as well as doing the research, I was also able to write the first draft and that was pretty amazing to be sitting in the places that I was writing about. Oh, wow. I can't imagine being in Paris and, and getting to sit and write and just absorb everything around you. Would have been amazing. It was Pretty much a dream, really. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and um, now I've not heard of anybody pitching at one of these pitching events a story that actually isn't written yet. That's interesting. Well, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I guess I don't know what people 
I mean, normally I hear, you know, you hear the pictures and they all sound good and they all sound, I mean, I, I guess I had the idea formed in my head and um, and also because I had a personal connection to the story and I, you know, I had some idea of what would happen. And I'd actually written uh, the first few chapters and I had, um, I, I don't know if you recall where Reuben gets to the mosque, that was basically, that used to be the start of the book. And so that was the bit that I pitched where he was arriving at the mosque. And so then I went back and actually developed his character a lot more because I had a lot of feedback from my writers group and saying that they, you know, they liked the tension and all that sort of thing with that bit, but they wanted to feel that they knew Reuben better so that they would care about him more. So I, w- I then went back and developed his character a lot more and then wrote, rewrote the start of the story many times. So, mm-hmm. And it's just, I love the way it comes in. I, I, I've spoken about this on the podcast before with Julie, how, you know, some books, um, they kind of drop you right in the action and some books develop a little bit more the background of the character. I just, that's the way I like it. <laughs> yeah, and, I um, felt yeah. too that being historical fiction, it needed to set the scene of where it was all taking place and the context of why Reuben was at this point in his life and why his family were leaving him at the mosque. Yeah, and I guess a lot of children um, reading this book wouldn't really know much about, you know, the Holocaust and, and why he would be going there. So they need that context, um, the wider context of the history as well. Yeah, well, that's true. And a lot of adults have actually read this book and said that they had no idea of what was going on in Paris mm. or this kind of thing or, or of the Valdiv Roundup or any of that part of of the history of the war. Yeah, there are so many facets to it, aren't there? I guess we can't know all of it. Um, but, yeah. Um, now, I love the, the simple but elegant language the short sentences that you used you managed to convey so much with so little was this intentional for this book or is this something that comes naturally to you oh thank you that's a very nice thing to say Um, well I did work for many years as an advertising copywriter so I kind of learned to you know we didn't have very many words to play with when you were writing advertising copy and every word had to earn its place so I guess that was where I kind of learnt that kind of style of writing. But also part of it was intentional because writing shorter sentences really helps to build up tension. And so that was a device that I used as well in places. Yeah, I think you did a really good job of that. And um, speaking of tension and then, and then, you know, this book's being set in the Holocaust, in my last episode I was chatting with, um, I don't know if you heard it, author... Hayley Chewins, we were talking about dark content in children's books and the Holocaust is certainly a dark topic for a middle grade book, but I I think you trod that line, that delicate line, very carefully. How did you manage this? Did you seek feedback from beta readers or sensitivity readers or just just kind of came out I must admit I can't take all the credit for that because um, I may have been a lot more heavy-handed, but I have a fabulous editor and Christy Bushnell, and she was just amazing. And she would kind of say, well, I know that's probably what happened, but we need to tone it down a bit. So um, she was great for giving me advice about, you know, what was appropriate for that age group and what wasn't and all that kind of thing. I did actually have sensitivity readers, but they were more 
for um, culture and historical, cultural and historical backgrounds. So I had uh, two Jewish Holocaust survivors from Paris and they read for um, for the historical content from the Jewish side and the cultural sensitivities. And also um, Amra Pajalik, um, the author, was wonderful at reading it for the Muslim sensitivities for the cultural things and just giving me advice about that. So it was really good to have that background as well as the research that I'd done and the people that I'd spoken to. Yeah, I can imagine it would have taken... Um you not only the, the sensitivity reading, but the just careful editing because, yeah, it is such it is a very sort of sensitive topic. And there's so many. I think uh, this is really my first historical fiction, so there were so many aspects to it that I didn't really realise until I was writing it. And that's where good editors come in, and they, um, you know, will pick up certain things that they might say needs a bit more information because they didn't understand the context or. Um, you know, how the characters ended up in this place at this particular time in history and all that kind of thing. And so uh, that was good because I kind of knew all the information. It was all there in my head, but in some places I hadn't conveyed it on the paper. And there was so much detail that I had to look into. Like I had to look at when Ramadan was and when uh, the Jewish festivities were back in 1942 and what the weather was like at that time of year what sort of vegetables they might have grown at the mosque and all those things. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was just so much of that research that went into it. Yeah. It was yeah, all fun, I, though. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And I, I bet there was a sort of an aspect of you know what's in your head and you know, you know, in hindsight what happened, but these characters might not know because I think in the, my review I was mentioning that um, in at that time, you know, Jewish people and any anybody – didn't know where people were being taken away to on these buses. They thought they were work camps. They didn't know that they were concentration camps until after, until much later. So they wouldn't, so, you know, at the time of your book, they wouldn't have known that either. No. And actually, um, there was so much propaganda in France and in all of Europe in the, in the years leading up to this kind of thing that um, in the years, you know, leading up to the Holocaust, that people were desensitised to it. And it's a bit like, you know, um, people that feel the same way about the refugees now, you know, it's they become desensitised by propaganda, you know, like when the children overboard, that kind of thing. People believed it because that was being said on the news, even though it was proven to be false. So that's the kind of thing that was happening. There was all sorts of propaganda. It's not unlike today. And so people were believing it. They were believing that this is the kind of, you know, that the, the Jewish people in some way deserve this. That's what some people believed. Of course, lots of people didn't because they saved a lot of people. But even the um, the morning of the roundup, the, the roundup took place the 16th and 17th of July, 1942. And the actual people doing the arrests were the Parisian police. And many of them were being threatened themselves, that if they didn't do this, their families would be harmed. And so a lot of the policemen were going very early in the morning and going to the households and saying to the Jewish people, we are going to be coming back to arrest you. And so you need to go, you need to leave. So a lot of them left, but there were some people that didn't because they didn't believe it would happen. They said, where, where will they put us all? What will they feed us? And so they had no concept of what what was in store for them 
what could happen. Yeah. And it is unbelievable when you think about it, you know. Like I find I still find it hard to believe that people can do this kind of thing to each other. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think it's great that um you know, you've used this book um and it's it's not it's not sort of a bordering on YA book. I think we were talking about this offline. It's more sort of a middle grade book to pose these questions in a sort of safe way. Yeah, well, that's what I, I really wanted to do and to, um, you know, so people would think of people as people. You know, this is this is Reuben's story. He's a, he's, a, he's a little boy. He's a person. He's a human being. The people saving him, you know, the Muslims at the mosque, they're, they're, they're people too, you know, and all this this kind of um, generalising and putting people in one category and dehumanising them, you know, it's just, it's it's what happens today as well and it's it's really horrifying. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's that's why history is so important to, to, to learn history. Yeah, and even if one person rethink, you know, like we write these books to, you know, so that people will, to change people's thinking and make them consider that there may be another way to do things or there may be another point of view. And when I actually showed this book uh, to my first Jewish sensitivity reader, she actually didn't believe that the Muslims would have saved Jewish people. Wow. And the um, one of the ladies at the Holocaust Centre in Melbourne showed her articles, newspaper articles, confirming that this is what had happened. And it changed her thinking and she was 92. So, you know, you think if you can change the thinking of, of a 92-year-old, then hopefully it will make people of all ages think, you know, think about these stories and, and who these people are and, you know, and not letting things like this happen to people ever again. Yeah, it's so, it's so important to, you know, even if you just change a few people's minds or, or reach a few people, it's, you know, it's a great thing. Well, I think um, so. That's that's what I hope to do anyway. Well, that's what we do as authors, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Hope to reach a few people. So you had another book, um, a young, um, very different, much younger Very, book, very different. <laughs> very different, called Eddie Popcorn's Guide to Parent Training. And I, I when I typed this out, I put to parenting. <laughs> I must parent training well, with parenting. Funny you say that because <laughs> – one of the reasons I wrote this book was I thought there are so many books out there, you know, there's toddler taming and there's, you know, dealing with teens and all this kind of thing and there's all these books for parents about dealing with problem children and there's nothing for kids about dealing with problem parents. <laughs> so I decided that it was time that one of those books were written. So, <laughs> so that's Great. what I and, and it's very funny and it's very different language. <laughs> I it's haven't gotten all the way to because my, my reading pile is just – Hi, but I have started. But you were – so these two books have come out at almost the same time, which is unfortunate timing because um, we're all also in, um, you know, this pandemic isolation. Um, but were you writing Eddie Popcorn at the same time as Beyond Belief or around the same time or is the timing of the release just a coincidence? Well, it, it is just a coincidence because I really – I did start Eddie Popcorn. I started Eddie Popcorn when my son was 11 and he's now 21. So that was when I basically, the idea came to me and I started collecting anecdotes. And, you know, I, I did start the writing process some years later, but he's been in my mind and in my heart for a very long time. But Beyond Belief is really 2017. It's probably when I started that, when I first 
came across the story. And so, you know, they are quite different and they've taken completely different lengths of time. I guess the only similarity is that they both have 11-year-old boys as main characters and um, they came out at the same time. So, <laughs> so, but I did, I was working on the revisions for both of them at the same time, so that was pretty interesting. And I was also writing the first draft of Eddie 2, which is Eddie Popcorn's Guide to Teacher Taming. So I was working okay, on all three books within a very short period of time. And I actually wow. really enjoyed that because Beyond Belief is quite an intense kind of a book. And so, you know, certainly the subject matter is, and when you're researching it, it's very intense. And so it was just great to have something a bit more lighthearted to work on at the same time. And I think that's actually how I like yeah, to Yeah, I can work. imagine. Yeah. So I like to have something, you know, fairly yeah. serious that I'm working on and something funny. Yeah. Is it, is it hard going from um, was it was it hard going from one voice to another like this? I, and I know that Eddie Popcorn's I think in first person and Beyond Beliefs in third person. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yep. Was it hard going switching that, or did you just find okay, I'm ready to get back into the other voice now? I think it was like it was like walking through a door into another family, you know, into a different lounge room with a different family. So it was like I think both these characters are still with me in my mind and so it doesn't seem to be that it's like having two children and you visit one one day and visit one the other day you know <laughs> it's kind of um because they're still both very strong characters in my mind it wasn't really that you know it didn't it didn't seem to be that hard at the time so okay. <laughs> I quite enjoyed it and it's oh, a funny thing because now, I mean, I'm I'm back in Eddie Popcorn's head again working on the second book, but um, I kind of miss Reuben a bit. Yeah, I can imagine he'd stay around with you for a while. Yeah. Stayed yeah. around with me for a while. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. So, Dee, are you ready for our six quick questions? Okay, I think so. <laughs> just, just answer as quick as you can. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Right. So, keyboard or pen and paper? Pen and paper. Favourite writing snack? Favourite writing snack? Mm. Oh, chocolate. Nice. Tea or coffee? Tea. Ebook or the real thing? Real thing. Cats or dogs? Oh, can I say rabbits? Ah, question. <laughs> <laughs> comedy or tragedy? Uh, comedy. Mm. You're a woman after my own heart. <laughs> so where can our listeners find you if they want to find out more i have a website at www.describe that's two d's describe.com.au i have a youtube channel which i think is actually called describe as well i'm on facebook as d white author and twitter as d white author and instagram as d white author and I also have a blog at Describe Writing and one at Writing Classes for Kids. I don't know if I've ever met an author with more diff different social media and websites I know, it's than, than I have. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's getting a bit carried away, but it's it's like you start, you know, different ones for different different yeah. purposes, and they do serve different purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, you know if. 
if you're happy to do it, it's, there's no problem. Well, some, of the, <laughs> some of the research uh, that I did for Beyond Belief, I made some amazing contacts through Facebook. So um, there was a particular group that I discovered called um, I Am Your Protector and they, their focus is basically on people from different races who are traditional enemies who have saved each other's lives and that's changed their way of thinking. And so that's the thing. There's so many different opportunities on different forms of social media. So like you, you probably use them for completely different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Podcast, personal, author, yep, all yeah, there. But all yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just you know, you can't curate them all at the same time. That's the only thing. No. So, Beyond Belief and Eddie Popcorn's Guide to Parent Training are out right now in all good bookstores and in the Scholastic Book Club catalogue, which is a bit exciting. I know. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Dee, for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you. Today on Middle Grade Mavens, I'm talking to Nat Amor, author of The Power of Positive Pranking, which will be published by Puffin in June 2020. Now, we've had Nat on the show before with her debut, Secrets of a Schoolyard Millionaire. So we were super keen to catch up on all that has happened since that first book was released. So hi, Nat, and thanks for joining us at Middle Grade Mavens. Well, hello, Julie. Thanks for having me again. I can't believe you had me back. Didn't you I learn your lesson? I can't believe it's been a year. Oh, me neither. It's kind of flown and been long at the same time. It's yes. weird. Yes. So I guess let's dive in. Tell us, Nat, how was your debut year? How did it unfold? Give us a rundown on the things that you did in that first year. Oh, it was, it's been an amazing year. It's been um, very epic, actually. So obviously, um, Millionaire came out um, and I went into a whirlwind of first book stuff, which, um, yes. you know, I didn't know about and wasn't prepared for. And um, it was so much fun. I got to um, go down to Melbourne and, um, you know, I did a bit of t bit of a TV spot down there, radio oh, interviews, yes. visiting schools, uh, you know, so much amazing stuff. And then Millionaire was um, Kids Book of the Month at both QBD and Dimix, which was amazing. So I got yes. like I got a uh, a window on Dimix and George oh, Street, which is like fantastic. Uh, like, yeah, I used to walk past that window when it was full of Harry Potter and joke to my partner like, oh, that'll be me one day. Not thinking <laughs> that it ever would be. And okay, it was a slightly smaller window than the Harry Potter one. But the point is, yes. I was in it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, so just, and then just had a really good year. Like the book was received really well, got um, just gorgeous fan mail from kids which has definitely been my favorite part fan mail is like from kids is yeah. the best thing in the world yeah. um so yeah and it's it did really well and um heaps of school visits and stuff like that and then I recently just found out that it was um the best selling Australian debut children's fiction <gasps> Um, for 2019 which is oh like massive um that is amazing so, yeah, it really is. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just, I just felt very good vibes and very warm and fuzzy about the whole thing, to be honest. So hey. it's been an, yeah. So 
there's nothing like trying to follow up the best year of your life with a oh. pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that, cosmic world. Um, but let's go to your new book. Where did you get the inspiration for the power of positive pranking? Well, I mean, I think like all my books, different parts of the idea come from different places. Um, yep. uh and of course, because you know, there's always layers to a book, and those layers can kind of some, some come from different places too. But I was actually in a cafe, and I was over. I, I'm a big, I'm the biggest eavesdropper. Like I just listen to everybody's conversations all the time. And there was this table of three older, well-to-do, soy latte drinking people sitting uh, next to me, and it was right around the time that um, all the climate change protests and um, strikes were going on yeah. and they were talking about the kids in particular kids that were you know um joining in the the s strike uh, during school days and stuff and they were just saying things like oh they should just you know be in school and do what they're told and pipe down and it's yeah. not their business and you know back in my day kids just you know <laughs> shut up and yeah. did what they were told kind of thing and I was getting really really angry about yep. this like conversation that was going on next to me and um I just kind of wanted to write a book that sort of was a tribute to all those kids that were like not just in in the climate strike stuff but like um or just taking a stand in things that they believe in and not letting um adults diminish their worth and knowing how important their voice is and um yep. so it came a little bit from that and then on top of that I then wanted to do I, I really like the idea of um sort of everyone having their own superpower so everybody doing things in their own way like finding what their strength is because being yep. on the street with thousands of people is not for everybody that's really intimidating for some people yep. it doesn't mean that they don't believe in that particular thing or they don't want to support it and so I really believe in um different people taking action in their own way and using their own thing that they're good at to sort of change the world um yeah. and then of course you know because it's a kid's book I wanted to take the most ridiculous thing and the most probably <laughs> the thing that would be dis dis approved not approved of disapproved yep. of I don't know if that's what disapproved of by those three adults sitting at the table as a way of um taking action and pranking obviously was something yep. like doing pranks but for a good cause I just really loved that idea you know a lot of my my all my writing sort of has this idea of you know the the wrong thing for the right reasons kind of feel to it um and so yeah I mean it kind of came from a lot of different places but that sort of is the where yeah. it kind of all started bubbling away, I think. And, of course, we know you were a prankster as a kid. I'm sure we've had that confession from you already. Maybe. <laughs> may, may or not be. I've always loved, like, I've, I've always loved pranks and I've always loved really clever pranks that yep. take a lot of preparation. You know, like a the fake dog game. doing your brother bed that's always you know that's always good for a laugh but I really like the stuff that takes a lot of planning and organization and yep. it's clever and th those kind of things you know I mean I'm, I used to be an events event manager and so I think like putting on good events is really just like really elaborate pranks essentially yes, <laughs> like it is. Where you can surprise 
people and and give them something that they're not expecting like I just think that that's so much fun and um yeah so it was very easy for me to roll with that (laughs) as a topic I bet so how different was this one to write from that first one which I know took you a considerably longer amount of time well it's really funny because I actually listened to our last interview in preparation for this one and we were talking about in quote quote unquote the next book um and I was talking to you about how I was writing this book about, you know, that had nothing to do with Millionaire and it was these four best friends and they were kidnapping their friend. And yes. I did write the book um, <laughs> and then handed it into Penguin and they were like, we love it, but maybe it should be your third book. And I'm like, huh? Yes. So I ended up um, that book, which is now, you know, all things going as plan is now set for 2021 and I ended up actually writing a third book to come out second yes Um, now because that was all shuffly and backwards and twisted around um, the time frame for this book to write it was very very short Uh, (laughs) so I actually wrote this book in three months essentially yeah and which was a good challenge for me and went okay. Um, the thing I was most nervous about was that I was really, really like handing in a first draft to Penguin. Yeah. Like it, I literally wrote the last word and sent it the next day, you know, like yeah. I didn't have any of that time that you sort of have normally for making it good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also wrote it so fast that I didn't really have much consideration time either, you know. So I was really nervous um, when I sent it both to my agent and my publisher, which normally I would send it to my agent, get the feedback and then send it to the publisher. But I was writing right up to the wire. So my agent yeah. and my publisher got it at the same time. Yeah. Um, I was very, very nervous waiting for feedback and it came very quickly and very positively so that was a great great. relief for me in fact I think my editor Lindsay actually was like I think I like it better than Millionaire and I was like Uh, really what um you know so and you know my agent who is wonderful um but not um flippant with praise um gave some really nice comments which you know warmed my cockles Um, yeah it was it was a very different process um there was a time frame it was a very short time frame um I just had to have a lot of blind confidence and just go for it which was yeah yeah, a different experience certainly to the first with no time frame at all and being your second book did you think oh you know, once they'd sort of read it and then that the, the structure edit, it comes back, oh, I've got this structural editing thing down pat now, I'm an expert, or did you crawl into a ball in the fetal position and just lament the day you ever decided to be a writer? Uh, funnily enough, um, all and none of the above. Um, <laughs> honestly, it was such a whirlwind, I just had no time for self-doubt. Like, even though I had it, yeah. I just didn't have enough time to give it any weight because I just had to go, you know. Um, I think that my background in film um, gives me a really natural sense of structure. Yeah. Um, I think when I write, um, the structure is maybe already quite 
good in my head, like just naturally. Um, so I think uh, so far, and I've, this is only my second book, but the structural edits that I get back, they're not real tear aparts. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, that that may change in the very near future. <laughs> Am I just going to lucky streak? I don't know. Um, but I guess I... Well, technically it was the third book, right? So I, I did have a bit more confidence in the sense that, hey, I've done it twice. Like I know the first one wasn't a fluke. Yeah. <laughs> I've now done it a second time and they liked that one as well. And so even though this is a second book coming out, it's actually the third one that yeah. I've, has been contracted. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I kind of, to be honest, I'm, I just go at full full bolt with everything you know blinkers on and just hope for the best it's just my attitude towards life in general yeah um and so I just kind of don't do the doubting thing I don't think it gets me anywhere um I just go for it and so far so far so good (laughs) absolutely yeah keep the positive going yep yeah yeah so the the cover for the power of positive pranking is once again fantastic what was it like to see your second book baby into the world? And also yours had quite uh, coming out, didn't it? Tell us about it. Yeah, I, I, um, it's, it's funny. The second book baby thing uh, felt very much like the first. Like I yeah. certainly didn't have a sense of like, oh, I'm so over this. I've so gotten used to this feeling. No, not at all. Um, when I saw the cover, um, that, so we had the same illustrator um, as we did for Billionaire um, do the cover. James Lancet is his name, and he's he's just brilliant. Like he just he just nails it. And I really loved how it it felt like, a bit like Millionaire, but it was yes. different. It was yep. clearly kind of related, but not the same. I don't know. I just you know I, I just I don't know how people do it. I always think like oh one day I'm going to get a cover that I'm not going to like. Yeah. <laughs> because so far every time they've sent me a cover I've been absolutely in love with it so um and I only I just got my author copies really recently (laughs) so yes um, I know I I think you got the book before I did I did (laughs) that that feeling of um holding it again and like sort of it was really funny because it's quite a bit thicker than millionaire so you know there's all those kind of experiences where you're like oh yeah and then you see them next to each other and you know none of that excitement changes it's so such a beautiful feeling and you know you look at all the words and you're like oh I can't believe I did all those words (laughs) there's still yeah so I don't think that that feeling um was any less than it was the first time around to be fair and you did a stop motion cover reveal, which I think is that on YouTube. I can't remember. Yeah, it's oh, it's sort of everywhere. I'd put it on um, Instagram, Twitter, yep. Facebook, YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I tend to do something to splash it across the whole lot because everybody likes different platforms. So um, yeah, yeah, I had um, so in Millionaire, Kooky Kathy has a Lego house, and the Lego yep. house is um in the power of Pros- as as is Kathy in the power of positive pranking as well. And um, I just finished watching Lego Masters, which I'm obsessed with. <laughs> um, and I've been locked inside for a long time. Yes. And I now have my 
own office um, and I had a lot of time on my hands. That's not true. Actually, I didn't have a lot of time on my hands, but I love procrastinating. Yes. Um, and so I put all those things together and did a uh, stop motion unboxing video where a lot of little mini Lego mini figs um, unboxed my book for me. It was amazing. Yep. Yeah. Never it was seen anything those, like it. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things that you don't really know. You have to do it all before yeah. you can actually see if it worked. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, so it was really one of those things where I just was hoping for the best and then when I put it together, uh, even I was like, oh, that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, have excelled myself. <laughs> well, you can watch it each time and if you watch a different group of minifigs each time, they're telling their own little story. Yeah. So it's really you know, I've watched it a couple of times and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot I made that little guy do that. <laughs> well, I'll have to go back and watch it again now. <laughs> yeah, there's the guy, so the guy in charge of um, blowing up the TNT, so not the guy who right. has the, the explosives, but the guy that pushes the thing, he pretty much stands down in the corner drinking coffee, then he puts his coffee down and blows the whole thing up and then picks up his coffee and goes back to drinking coffee. That's all he does for the whole oh, video. Fantastic. So, yeah, he's great. <laughs> so... This has been a whirlwind, but what has been the highlight of the whole author process? Um, the kids, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I would write anyway. Like, I'm just, uh, like, I, I like stories. I like creating. So, like, it's amazing to see my stories as books. But without a doubt, it's been connecting with the kids who have loved the book. Would you know? particular um so like I said getting fan mail from kids like kids write me letters and parents take photos of their letters and send it to me through email yep. and stuff and, and you know meeting the kids at school like the number of times now that I've gone to a school where the teacher has read Millionaire to the class over a period of time and yep. then I come in after so all the kids know the book and know the story and like they're so into it and they have this yep. best questions and it's so um weird and wonderful to think that my imagination has infiltrated their imagination like yes. it's this connection that you have that I don't think I ever even knew was possible um and certainly not on such a scale and yeah you, it really makes you realize how much your writing or your stories or your books can impact kids um, yeah, and definitely. it's a very powerful, powerful thing. And it's, um, it's a, it, it does also make you realize that there's, it's kind of intimidating the responsibility that's on your shoulders. Yes. Like, you forget how much you're getting inside those little brains. Um, yeah. and, but yeah, it's really, really beautiful. The kids are just, have been just amazing. They're, they're everything in this process and that's why they actually the second book is dedicated to them so yeah um yeah no it's it that's definitely the best the best of the best the best of the best yeah definitely yeah. now as we record this we are in the midst of pandemic covid 19 Lots of authors have had their publicity tours and book launches cancelled, and I know this has also affected you. What is your recipe for launching a book in the midst of these troubling times? 
<laughs> Does anybody have a recipe? Because if they do, I want to know it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like cooking with leftovers here. I don't know what's going on. Um, yeah, no, it's been really hard because like um, I had some amazing things lined up. I was going to go on my first national book tour. Yes. Um, Penguin was taking me um, to five cities around Australia and that was going to be amazing. Um, I was lined up to host the... Um, primary school days program at the Sydney Writers Festival and one of the family day programs I was emceeing, like going to be working with some amazing authors, both Australian and international. Um, I had festivals lined up, like it was a lot of stuff that I was really excited about that you know, there was a few days there where every morning I was waking up to another email about another thing being cancelled and, um, you know, I gave myself a couple of days to sit on the couch and cry and feel sorry for myself yeah. um, in my pyjamas, eating ice cream and, you know, doing all that thing. And then I just kind of went, well, you know, first of all, you're not the only one. Second of all, there's much worse things going on in the world. Um, yes. We, we, we will always look at how this pandemic is affecting us personally, but the the effect globally and the effect on other people both in this country and in other countries is so much greater. And um, uh, my partner's French and so, you know, talking to his family over in Europe, it's yeah. devastating. Um, and so... You know, as I tend to do with just about everything in my life, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself, dust off your shoulders and work out how to move forward. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, looking at things I could do online, I, I did in the month of April, I was doing um, Book and Boogie, which was yes. like a book inspired online dance fitness for kids, um, you know, doing promo videos. I did a, a an Auslan video with an awesome kid called Levi um, to promote pranking. Uh, I did the Lego thing we were talking about. Yep. And now because the book, so the book's coming out on the 2nd of June and because restrictions and all that stuff's changing now, I've had to really think on my feet and we've actually just figured out a way to kind of do a book launch. Yeah. So 6th of June at Berkelow Books in Leichhardt, we're doing um, Rachel, who's the works in the kids section in Berkelow, who is the most amazing advocate for children's books. And I just love her to death. And I think we might be like weird creative soul mates or something like that. <laughs> yes. um, we've got together and we've decided that we're going to do a marathon book launch. So yes. because, uh, you know, gatherings. Five at a time, back. kind of. Yeah. yeah, all that kind of stuff. There, the bookstore is obviously open, but with social distancing in place and rules and stuff like that. So we're doing a marathon book launch, which is going to go from like 11 in the morning till three in the afternoon. And I'm going yes. to be um, in their window. Yes. <laughs> so like a fishbowl. <laughs> so like how you can go and view the animals at a zoo. I'll be Yay. like that. Um, so you can come at any time during that span. Um, you can get your book, you can get it signed. There's balloons, you grab your lolly bag. Um, there's prizes to be won if you get lucky. Um, and from behind my little sneeze guard, I'll be able to sign your book. Oh, <laughs> and so fun. we're doing a social distancing marathon book launch so that instead of everybody 
you know, being there at once, which they can't be. Everybody can just come whenever they want and still get all the loot and everything that you'd normally get at a book launch, but doing it in a really safe way. So it's going to be interesting. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) I wish we lived in Sydney, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I'm actually just, we've just been working out all the details in the last couple of days, um, but it is it is on and Rachel and I are very excited about it and I'm very excited about spending five hours sitting in a window. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so, yeah. I hope somebody does some kind of prank, but anyway, no, I shouldn't have said that out loud. Anyway. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you never know. You never know. Might know. Maybe there'll be some pranking going on. I'm sure there will be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've already covered it, but we're going to do it anyway. What is next for Nat Amor? Do you have anything you can discuss with us yet, Tihi? Yes. Um, so I've uh, just signed another two book contract with Penguin. Wow. So. Yeah, so essentially that second book I wrote, which is now the third book, <laughs> yeah. Um, when they, so Pranking fulfilled the second book contract and then when um, they Penguin signed up the third book, which is the second book I wrote, so confusing, um, when I got the contract, it was actually another two-book contract. Yay. So, yeah, so I have to write another book in a another relatively short space of time. Um, Yay. Not because Penguin didn't give me a long time this time, but because I've been slack and haven't started. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's 100% my fault. Um, So, yeah, at the moment, and this is all dependent on everything, you know, with the world being how it is at the moment. But at the moment, I've got two books set for 2021. Wow. So that's very exciting. And then... um, Obviously, I'm really hoping that some of the stuff that got cancelled because of um, COVID will will come up again and be, um, you know, rescheduled. I know Book Week, um, they've bumped it to October, I believe. So, got some exciting school visits and stuff coming up then. So, yeah, I mean, look, it's... even though we're, it's still a bit unsure and we don't know where we're going to be and when, I'm certainly pushing forward and really excited about what's coming up and can't wait to get out to schools and getting kids' faces and terrorise teachers again. I don't mean that. I mean yeah. mean not terrorise teachers. In the best possible it. way. <laughs> With fun, I mean, of yes. course. So, Nat, it has been, <clears throat> excuse me, just choke, um, an utter pleasure yet again. Where can we find you online if our listeners are interested in checking out your books? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to my website is natamore.com, N-A-T-A-M-O-O-R-E. Um, on Facebook, I'm Nat Amor Writer, and on Instagram and Twitter, I'm Nat underscore Amor. Um, and if you go to my website, I'm just going to be popping all the info up to the book launch. So if you're in Sydney and you want to pop out to Leichhardt anytime during the book launch day and say g'day, I'd love to see you. Um, and yeah, I'll be popping. You can pre-order pranking uh, the power of positive pranking already, so you can jump on my website and do that. And I just really hope everyone enjoys the book and it gives you a a good laugh in these times. Well, I don't know if you can hear Nat, but my mother has just called me on the phone. Oh, really? <laughs> Does she want a copy of the book? Is that what's going on? Tell her I'll send her one. <laughs> 
I, I we just I don't even know where the phone is. <laughs> Well, I didn't even hear it. I was too busy gas bagging. I am so. really hoping it didn't come through on the recording. But it was just like, oh, yeah, great. My mother's pranking me during a interview. And I'm so How sorry, Nat. <laughs> no problem. Uh, anyway, we will we'll locate that phone at some point and turn it off. <laughs> eh, not even. Well, best of luck, Nat. Oh, I must mention Giselle Red um, pranking in an, I think in a night. Oh, wow. I'm not even joking. No, maybe it was two nights. I'm probably exaggerating her reading ability, but it is, she is off the charts fast. And I'm so jealous because it takes me literally three weeks to read a book and she does it in two nights, but she stole it from me, foil cover, um, you know. <laughs> included and I was like oh I've got to read that for the podcast I never saw it again for two <laughs> nights and I think I told you she just didn't want to get up for homeschooling the next day because she had a book hangover so oh, yeah that's I think amazing and so I it's think... a it's a thick one as well so I'm impressed she must, be a, she must be a speed reader <laughs> oh she is I wish I had that Jean but yeah so anyway Nat once again thank you for joining us and we will look forward to your next book baby Oh, thanks so much for having me again, guys. Thanks for joining us at Middle Grade Mavens. Next up, Pamela reviews The Book of Chance by Sue Whiting and Julie reviews The Theory of Hummingbirds by Michelle Catterosman. Plus, Kate O'Donnell from the Younger Son Bookshop stops back in for some June book recommendations. And Michelle also jumps into the Maven's hot seat for some authorly banter. If you'd like to know more about the Mavens, log on to middlegradepodcast.com. Or to find Julie online, drop by julieandgrassobooks.com. And to find Pamela, stop by www.ueckerman.net. <laughs>